right. You know, we still have questions about how the Ontario will be uh, legalizing marijuana. And, you know, some of the, they announced some of the framework today, but it's completely it, it's very vague. I mean, there's some particulars. We will in the first year, we'll open 80 standalone shops and uh, the government is going to control everything. Uh, we're joined by Toronto Mayor John Tory now to talk about a few things, including the um, uh, province's announcement that they will handle exclusively the um, marijuana sales in the province. John, should the government take on the role of uh, drug dealing? Well, of course, let's remember that what we're now going to be dealing with is a legalized product. And so that being said, and I'm supportive of that change in status as opposed to what we have now, which is the sort of the black market, perhaps controlled by criminal elements and people going to jail for simple possession. So I think this is a step forward. I I believe in the circumstances, the government actually, as they do with uh, liquor, uh, running the retail distribution is uh, a common sense way to go about this because it allows us to know the same people who address the issues I care most about, which is children, access by kids. Uh, safety of people in neighborhoods will be, you know, adequately addressed with uh, marijuana as it is with uh, alcohol. So I think it makes sense and it allows us to sort of lever off the infrastructure that the LCBO has in place with store locations and how to run a retail operation and all this kind of thing. So I think it's probably the best available answer. When will you start cracking down on the illegal dispensaries in Toronto? Because a lot of people say that, you know, at least we have a framework now, we know what's going on, and now the police will be able to deal with them. Well, I, you know, look, we've been cracking, and when I say we, I mean our zoning officials and the police, neither of whom take instructions from me, but I've certainly indicated my wish because I believe it's consistent with what the people that I represent want, which is not to have marijuana dispensaries on every street corner and in every retail strip. I don't think neighborhoods and families and people really want that, nor do I think people who use marijuana need it, uh, you know, need to have that kind of distribution that's just all over the place. So I think the system uh, that's in place will now allow for legal stores that will be run by some offshoot of the LCBO. And I think that will be the time when all the other stores will not be legal anymore. Uh, They're not legal now, but they clearly won't be legal after the new regime is in place. I would hope most of those people will recognize they're breaking the law and close down themselves. But if not, I guess it'll be the same as any other law that's broken. It'll be up to the police and the uh, zoning authorities to enforce the law, and I will be encouraging them to do so. We have 2.8 million people in Toronto. Um, So we're hearing that the province will open 80 standalone stores uh, by July 1st, 2019. How many do you think the city should have? It's hard for me to know. I I would uh, start off by saying that my guess would be you would require in terms of accessible, you know, fair, uh, geographically fair use, uh, less than the number of liquor stores we have in Toronto, just because I think there will be fewer people consuming or using marijuana than use uh, alcohol. But having said all that, it's not up to me to pick the number. I just want them to be careful in where they put them. Again, with the premium placed on safety of kids, safety of neighborhoods, uh, the integrity of retail strips, because uh, not everybody wants a marijuana store anywhere you know near where they do business or near their kids school or whatever and so i hope that it's more that they place them strategically as opposed to the quantity uh, that they have amazon is shopping around for a home for their second uh, north american headquarters and i understand you're very eager to secure uh, that deal what could this mean for toronto well, it could mean by their own uh, documentation, 50,000 jobs, well-paying jobs in the technology area. It could mean billions of dollars invested because that's what they're saying this is about. It's a huge complex that's going to be equal, they say, in their own material 
uh, to their head office in Seattle, which is making a multi-billion dollar contribution on an ongoing basis. And so I don't think I'd be doing my job properly. Uh, I've spent a lot of my time as mayor going to Los Angeles to woo film productions here successfully, encouraging people to invest in the film industry, uh, trying to woo technology companies here successfully, not in every case, but in many. And I think a fundamental part of what I have to do is attract jobs to Toronto. So I wouldn't be doing my job if we didn't put forward an aggressive bid, especially in light of the fact that I think we've got all the right stuff here. We have a cool cosmopolitan city, which I think is way more important than people think. We have a very smart workforce here, and we're pumping out more really well-qualified graduates every year from our great universities. Um, and, uh, you know, we have an existing tech industry that's growing as fast as any in North America. So I think we should be bidding. We will bid. And, you know, it's going to be a tough competition. We're up against American cities, and this is an American company. But having said all that, uh, we'll put our best foot forward, and uh, we'd be, uh, you know, derelict in our duties if we didn't. What advantage would you say that we have here in Toronto over those American cities as far as a headquarters goes for Amazon? Well, I just look at some of the objective measures that they suggest are important. And, I, and, and when it comes to sort of a livable city, uh, when it comes to the availability of 50,000 people to fill those jobs I talked about, when it comes to the proximity of excellent uh, universities, um, I think, you know, if you start with the livable city part, I mean, you know, we rank. We rank in the world every year, not measured by me. Uh, but we rank in the top five most livable cities ahead of all the other people that are rumored to bid. So, you know, I just think there's a great case we can put forward that has a lot to do with substance and a lot to do with uh, the livability of the city and a lot to do with our values here. And I think we will be, you know, at least well in the competition. But again, I, I know it's, uh, you know, it's a tough competition and I'm not, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just saying we're going we're gonna to do our best and I think we can win. Let's talk about 911. We're hearing some disturbing news that the wait times are longer than normal. I think the international standard is 10 seconds. I've had no problems when I've called 911 personally to report a drunk driver or two, uh, but the wait time is dizzying. We've got this tweet here that is making the rounds that August 31st, 2017, the night of the Sheridan Mall shooting, that there were only seven 911 operators on hand before the shooting, and the 911 queue was 31 calls waiting one minute and nine seconds. Then we move on to when the shooting occurred same seven call takers 911 queue 86 calls waiting five minutes and 27 seconds and then after the shooting same seven call takers or at least the same number of call takers 911 queue 56 calls waiting seven minutes and 17 seconds so how are you going to deal with the problem of being on hold in a 911 queue for a while well, I've seen this information, and I think the important thing for us to understand first and foremost is when the calls were taken after the five minutes on which I would acknowledge is not an acceptable period of time for people to wait, what were they about? Because I think the first thing you have to determine is, you know, what was the nature of those calls? Because there's no question in my mind that what you allude to is correct. If your house is on fire or if there's somebody who's having a heart attack or, you know, whatever, um, you, you are not going to be wanting to wait, nor should you wait five minutes or four minutes or three minutes, you know, beyond a reasonable standard to get somebody to know that you've got a problem and send somebody out urgently. So I think that's an important consideration, but you have to know the circumstances first. And then the second thing, I, I think there is some truth to the, to the effect, because I've seen the numbers, that there are thousands of calls. There are literally thousands of calls to 911 that come from pocket dialing, thousands. So we have to get rid of 
a lot of that kind of thing, and that's a matter of public education. But that doesn't take away from the fact that until such time as you can educate the public better, you have to answer the phone properly so that people who are facing genuine emergencies are not, you know, waiting on the phone. So, you know, we're going to try to sort of understand the nature of the problem and then do better. And if it's a simple matter of budget, none of these things are ever that simple. You know, just spend more money. Mm -hmm. But having said all that, uh, I understand the fact that uh, 911 is meant for emergencies, and emergencies doesn't mean you wait seven minutes to have somebody talk to you. The London Police Association is saying they have 400,000 people, and they staff their 911 with seven call takers. We have 2.8 million in the city of Toronto. I mean, it just, the numbers don't seem to make sense. Well, that's part of what we're going to have to look at. And look, when you do your budget every year, um, not just as regards 911, but every other part of city services, you want to look at that. Is it well-staffed? Is it meeting the standard? Um, you know, is it fulfilling the function it's meant to fulfill? So um, as we go through both the analysis of the numbers you referred to about particular times when waiting times were not, I would say, I would, I would agree, not acceptable, um, and then look at that in the broader context of saying, well, is the problem that we don't have enough call takers and will you solve the problem by having more call takers uh, on a per capita basis or whatever? That's precisely what you go through. Um, and look, I'm not saying we have to wait around until budget time to resolve this because the budget actually doesn't get approved until February. Mm. But I am saying that uh, it is all tied up in budgetary decisions, among other things, and that what we are doing is actively reviewing what is going on with that. And you can't look at any given one day. You have to look at a given day, but you have to also look at the whole year and say, well, on, on the year as a whole or a month as a whole or a week as a whole, are we meeting a reasonable standard? And that's precisely what we're doing right now. Yeah, when you're talking about people, you know, the one day that they have an emergency is going to be the thing that sticks with them the most. Fully but- understand. And, and But that's why you look across the year, too, because people have emergencies every day. Um, but I, it is, look, I'm, I'm trying to say this is uh, something that's very much in front of me and that it, it, within both the context of the budget, but also in the context of just this issue in and of itself, um, is something where we have to look and make sure we're providing a, a reasonable level of service in one of the most important areas to people that that's there when they need it. And, uh, you know, that's how you access ambulances and police cars and fire trucks oftentimes. And uh, we just have to make sure that uh, we're meeting that standard. So I'm undertaking to sort of have that review and do whatever is required to make sure we uh, fulfill that service. We're talking to Toronto Mayor John Tory. John, before I let you go, I have to ask you this question. It's a burning question. Ford Fest, are you going tonight? No, I, you know, even though I know they've invited the whole world, um, I, and I'm not sort of waiting around for anybody to invite me. It's unlikely, of course, uh, that I would attend. Yeah. But um, you know, look, it, this is uh, you know something they've they've done, and uh, they seem to give a lot of stuff away for at a political event, which I don't think other people are allowed to do. But having said all that, that's an interesting um, take on it, John. Well, it, it is. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, if I was to have a party like that and give away free food and, and liquor, I'm not sure what people would have to say about that. But anyway, um, it is what it is. And, uh, you know, I just think in the context of big announcements, we've heard a lot of predictions of big announcements in the past. And if it, it's one that has to do with the office that I hold. Super. And I'll be urging people to look back just three short years to the complete dysfunction of the city council. Uh, the fact that our, our relationships with other governments were in tatters. Our reputation was daily being uh, besmirched on uh, media around the world. Uh, you know, we were cutting back on transit. Uh, we were not producing our housing goals, uh, affordable housing goals. And if people want to go back to that, I guess that's their choice. But I don't think they will. Yeah, we're talking about the prospect of Doug Ford running for mayor of Toronto against you. I guess that's what you said. But uh, anyway, having said that, we'll see whatever <laughs> well, announcements emerge. It's the worst the kept secret of, ever tonight, I think. Yeah, well, we'll see what happens. All right, John, listen, I, I appreciate your time, and I know you're a busy man, so I'm going to let you go. But thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate yeah, it. Have a great weekend, you and your listeners, Kelly.